Welcome back to Not A Dollar More. My name is Shane Rogers. This is Australia's first podcast series dedicated to helping people who are wanting to stop or control their gambling, or for people who just want to know more about the potential harmful effects of gambling. I've experienced a gambling addiction myself, so I know all about it. In this episode, we'll hear two very different stories of drugs, alcohol, and gambling. We'll also speak with Dr. Victoria Manning, a researcher with a special interest in the effects that drugs and alcohol can have on gambling. I know personally for me, a large bulk of my gambling was done drinking. Drinking for me took on another role as the encourager to bet more and sort of ensured me that everything would be fine. Unfortunately, it wasn't. Our first guest is Crystal, who found drinking was closely linked to her addictive gambling behaviour. Thanks for joining us, Crystal. If we could start with how your gambling got started. My gambling started 35 years ago, actually. I was 19 and... I went with my then fiancé across the border to play the poker machines. It was actually in Canberra. And I can remember at the time just thinking, oh, you know, how great this was. We went into one of those league clubs and, yeah, just that exciting environment and having a drink and I just basically fell in love with it straight away. Yeah, so for like many people, gambling starts out socially and it sounds like then it become a problem. Just going back to the drinking, especially for me, I can always remember using alcohol as an excuse to go to a venue. I always used to think, I might go and just have a couple of pots today at the pub, catch up with a friend. But generally for me, the real reason was actually to go and gamble. But then they both played a big part while I was there. The more I drank the more I lost generally and probably the better I felt when I was there because I'd sort of numbed out all the things that were going on in my life. It made me probably feel a little bit better for the time that I did spend in there. Does any of that resonate with you? or When the pokies did eventually come to Victoria, my husband at the time would generally go out Saturday night and we'd go to a pub and have a, a dinner And then, yep, you know, spend a bit of money um, gambling later on. The drinking wasn't a problem for me then, but um, the two did coincide and definitely the alcohol relaxes you. And I can remember even sort of back in the early days wanting to always spend more money. So I think even initially it was becoming a problem, but I I didn't realise that. Could you gamble without drinking? No. No, I probably could have, but I didn't. Because, you know, you're at a pub or you're at a venue and, you know, they serve alcohol. So So when you did become addicted to the pokies, can you describe a typical day? I'm smiling. There was a typical many days... For me, it became an escape. I had a lot of things going on in my life at the time and my marriage was breaking down. My mum was diagnosed with bowel cancer. I was then the following year diagnosed with breast cancer and um, it was around that time that my children had all become adults and were leaving home. So I found myself alone for the first time in my 40s and, um, you know, didn't know how to spend my time alone. 
didn't know who I was. So really, you know, going to the pokies was just a nice, comfortable surrounding and it helped pass the time and definitely the drink started to numb out my feelings and even um, I'd sort of play little games with myself while I was there. You know, if I'd have a little win, I'd reward myself with a glass of wine or a glass of champagne and, you know, that's how the momentum started and then over time it gradually got worse. Like was winning ever a reason to going or was it more just to block uh, out? Winning was great. I loved winning and, you know, the the adrenaline surge or the high that you got from winning was fantastic. But I think ultimately the reason that I went was to escape my reality. So, Crystal, what effect do you think drinking had on your gambling? Drinking made me a lot braver regarding the gambling and the drinking helped to basically numb out the feelings of the damage that I was doing with the the gambling. While I was in a venue, the drinking helped, you know, not to think about the consequences and I would do, you know, anything to stay at a venue for as long as I possibly could and that meant often staying until closing time at some ridiculous hour in the morning or until the money ran out. That was the goal, to stay as long as possible. But then, you know, walking out of a venue, that that feeling of dread and the, the self-abuse started and it, it was just the worst feeling in the world. And driving home after having way too much to drink, but it didn't stop me. It didn't stop me just from doing it again the next day or the day after. Um, yeah, so that the cycle would just continue. Yeah, right. At what point did you realise something had to change? I lost my licence twice for drink driving. The first time I lost my licence for six months and that was a week or so before Christmas And I can just remember being really pissed off about it that time and, you know, that that it was really annoying and, you know, what was I going to do without a licence and how was I going to get to venues? But then the second time that I got caught drink driving, I just knew within myself that it all had to stop. I was just so ashamed and... I cried and I cried for over 24 hours and the big thing for me was my three adult children. You know, what was I going to say to them? It was hard enough telling them that I'd lost my licence the first time, let alone the second time. So for me, that was that was the jolt that I needed to, to stop it all. So like rock bottom? Rock bottom. Yeah, right. Very rock bottom. So then what did you do? Once I suppose once you've realised that this had to stop. So I rang a GA member because I had a phone list and was really lucky to be picked up to be taken to a GA meeting. And from there, um, you know, I just found that the GA people were great and yeah, it's just it has helped me 
to stay stopped with the drinking and the gambling. So you went to GA, Gamblers Anonymous. What did you find helpful from them? Initially, when I went to Gamblers Anonymous, I felt that they were all, you know, a bit sort of weird or (laughs) – because they're just so friendly and I thought, oh, there's – you know, that's a bit odd. But after having tried so many other things, including hypnotherapy, um, I went to Dayhab, you know, I went to see naturopaths, just sort of tried everything – and and once I'd hit rock bottom with the losing my licence the second time, I, I really felt as though I had nothing else. I just needed to get to GA. In the beginning, I felt it really hard to, because, you, you know, at the beginning of a meeting, you greet and you say your name and that you're a compulsive gambler. And I found that really difficult. I, I thought, well, am I? You know, why can't I get better? Why can't I just say, hello, I'm Crystal, I'm a gambler? But as time went by, I did understand that I was a compulsive gambler because gambling was controlling my life and had ruined my life. And that was a big part of me getting better, admitting to myself that I was compulsive. So I did find GA very helpful. Also, um, you know, realising now how it does help. When you've got an addiction, you are a very, very lonely person and, and you're suffering that addiction in silence. Whereas when you go to meetings, you're a part of a group and there's strength in numbers. And over time, you, you know, make friendships with people that, that have so much in common. And that's, it's, yeah, it's definitely strength in numbers, and I think that's how it helps so much. So was the drinking hard to, to give up as well? Uh, it wasn't as hard as what I thought it would be. I, once I made up my mind and I realised what a problem the drinking had become, especially the drinking and driving and, you know, that the thought of endangering my own life as well as others... No, it wasn't hard to stop. I do miss it occasionally at functions and things like that. But what I've gained by not drinking and not gambling just outweighs that. So for people listening out that might have a pokey addiction or I suppose any gambling addiction, what have they got to look forward to? Like how's your life changed? Just being able to live a normal life and not being bombarded with the continual thoughts about the next gamble and you know when you're not at a gambling venue or you know gambling on your phone or whatever the thoughts of when you're going to be able to escape to gamble next yeah my life has just changed so much I have much better relationships with my children and my now grandchildren and um I've recently got a new job that I'm really enjoying and just things have improved dramatically. That's really good and that's going to help a lot of people out there. Do you still experience any urges? I don't know that they're urges but from time to time I'll think, you know, even driving past a venue that I used to frequent, 
you know, I'll think, oh, used to go there. But my thought processes now are definitely about used to. So I seem to be able to control, will I, won't I? It sort of, I just get rid of those thoughts immediately and and sort of leave it at that in the past. Yeah, right. Crystal, if you could just give one hint for people, one practical hint perhaps, for people that are really trying to make some changes in their life with their gambling. Have you got a a helpful hint? In my early days when my gambling had become a problem, I seeked out help from my daughter and uh, she bought me a Safeway card and it was $300, the amount, and that would enable me to buy my groceries and um, practical things that I needed without having access to cash. And, uh, yep, I found that really helpful. Fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us today on Not A Dollar More and good luck for the future. Thank you. You're listening to Not A Dollar More and in this episode we're exploring the effects of alcohol and the use of drugs on gambling. To help us understand about this a bit more, we have Associate Professor Victoria Manning, from Monash University and Head of Research at Turning Point, who through her professional work has researched the link between drinking, drugs and harmful gambling. Welcome, Victoria. Thank you. So tell me, do alcohol and other drugs often go hand in hand with gambling? Yeah, I think they do. We know about two thirds of Australians gamble at least once a year and about eight out of every 10 Australian drinks alcohol in the past year, and around one in eight using illegal drugs. And we know that some people will engage in these behaviours concurrently. For example, use alcohol or drugs when gambling. Alcohol is the most commonly used substance, and so that's the one we most commonly see in the context of gambling. So when I was gambling, I used to drink quite heavily, and they would normally go together. Why do you think that is? Why would I always want to gamble? Um, at the same time that I was drinking? Yeah, that's a really good question. The reason why these two behaviours go hand in hand, it's really a number of reasons. Environmental factors. We know at most gambling venues um, alcohol is sold and they're often places where one can drink to excess without being judged or noticed. There's also financial or social factors. So for some, gambling may be a way of escaping drug-related problems such as boredom or relationship problems or unemployment, etc., Also, emotional factors are a key. Um, People may use alcohol or drugs to celebrate a win, but it's very common for them to use alcohol as a coping mechanism for losses and to manage the guilt and shame that many people experience when they're gambling. And also there's common underlying psychiatric factors such as depression, anxiety, personality disorders, emotion regulation and impulsivity, trauma, etc., where somebody may just feel low and these behaviours have been a way of increasing sort of dopamine or increasing um, their well-being. When we um, we speak to other interviewees, they talk about, or people that have been affected by the pokies, mm-hmm. they talk about, you know, playing the pokies, being in a zone, mm-hmm. sitting, having their glass of wine. So yeah. what exactly is that glass of wine, you know, doing to somebody yeah, so when somebody's gambling and they're taking on board a, a you know a fair amount of alcohol, it's essentially sort of dampening down the frontal lobes and what we call executive functioning. So this refers to the sort of higher order cognitive functions, things like self-monitoring, self-regulation, planning, decision making, keeping in mind our goals. So it means we're more likely to start gambling, play for longer, spend more money, play riskier bets, and perhaps it can increase our confidence as well in winning, leading to bigger losses. 
And we're also less likely to care about those losses or minimise them, particularly when we're in that moment, when we're in the zone. We can also have a reduced ability to estimate odds and weigh up the costs and benefits of continuing to play. And we know that alcohol, when consumed in high quantities, reduces our ability to convert short-term memories into long-term memories, which makes it easier to forget those nasty losses. Many of us will be familiar with the experience of having lost track of time after a few drinks. So if someone goes to the pokies thinking, OK, I'm only going to stay for an hour or until I've spent this $100. When drugs and alcohol are added into the mix, it becomes a lot harder to monitor these, harder to stick to these limits and makes it more likely that we'll have a bust. It's also a lot harder to control our emotions as well when we're drug affected. So when we're distressed, for example, because of a bust... We may be more likely to chase losses as we become more disinhibited and impulsive and where the rational part of our mind that tells us we're not likely to win back that money tends to go out the window. From my experience in the Peer Connection program where we speak to gamblers, there's quite a few people talking about the relationship between taking ice Mm -hmm. and um, not being able to get off a pokey machine. Mm -hmm. Do you hear or see much of that? I'm not aware of many people seeking treatment for those two issues. But the reality is methamphetamine, it's a stimulant. And therefore, it keeps us awake for longer periods of time, which means people are under the influence and can gamble for longer periods than they would otherwise, betting and usually losing larger amounts of money. But methamphetamines increase our attention to some degree, and that can help us feel more focused, more alert, more motivated and more engaged with reward-seeking behaviours. It can make people feel more interested in certain activities and possibly fixated on repetitive tasks like playing pokies. A lot of people we have spoken to talk about having only a couple of drinks while they were gambling. Should they have stopped altogether to get their gambling under control? That's a good question, but we have to remember that both gambling problems and alcohol problems exist on a continuum. So if somebody thinks that substance use is affecting their gambling or drinking is affecting the way in which they gamble, then sure, it's a good idea for them to delay drinking and to avoid as much as possible drinking in the pokey venue or the casino or wherever they are. But for some people, that's quite difficult. If somebody with severe or more complex alcohol problems, that can be very hard to achieve. Of course, we would advise that they try again not to drink before they start gambling. But it's not necessary for somebody to completely recover from having a gambling problem to quit substance use or quit their use of alcohol or drugs altogether. What advice do you have for people who are aware their drinking or drug use is affecting their gambling? My advice is really to don't hesitate, reach out for help. There's so much help out there now. There's never been more ways to get help for both substance use and gambling problems. There's so much support and treatment available. So I would encourage anybody to speak to somebody that they can trust, a friend, a GP, a healthcare professional, and to maybe contact a helpline because these tend to offer confidential, anonymous counselling and then you can explore options, you can see what suits you. There's lots of peer support available. There's also lots of psychological treatment or talking therapies which can be really powerful in terms of building confidence, building resilience, identifying triggers and also how we can react to those in a more healthy way and to learn strategies for restricting how we drink or how we gamble and managing urges and craving and also, importantly, learning how to manage uncomfortable emotions and regulate our mood states. Victoria, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. And finally in this episode, we'll be hearing from Ian who will share his extraordinary story of gambling, drinking and drugs and his long road to recovery. Welcome, Ian. Can you give us a brief snapshot of your gambling story? Yeah, Shane, uh, when I was a young bloke, I started working about the age of nine. I had a bit of spare pocket money and um, 
dad was a bit of a gambler and, um, you know, finding it hard to make ends meet. And I sort of, you know, wanted to sort of follow dad's footsteps and um, just started by having like little 50 cent bets here and there on the horses. And from there, it sort of all began and began a lifetime of about 35 years worth of gambling. Yeah, right. Well, mine started exactly the same. The small 50 cent bets at home all seemed pretty innocent at the time. But as we both know, things can get out of hand pretty quickly. So when did you start drinking and taking drugs while you're gambling? I started drinking probably around the age of 10 or 11 when I was with Dad playing golf and stuff. I actually started stealing them off him. And um, I had a little bit of abuse around the age of 11. And to hide that, I started to drink a little bit. And having drugs around me, like, you know, passed down from my oldest cousin through to my oldest brother. And I had it just around me a bit. And I started to smoke a little bit of marijuana but basically um, alcohol was what really numbed what I'd been through as a bullied child and throughout life and the marijuana didn't really play too much of a part. I got away from that through my teenage years but always the theme was that I would drink and drinking and gambling really come close together and it was never about money it was always about an escape basically and just that numbness and when I'd drink and when I'd gamble, like I'd get that feeling of being a winner and I knew I was a good person and basically it sort of started there. Yeah, and I'm glad to be here today talking and hopefully I can help some people. What would a typical day be like? Would you start with drinking or would you start with drugs and then gambling? Did sort of one lead to the other? The only time I can say that marijuana really played a part in the gambling was when I'd borrow $5 from my mother, go down put it on a horse to win $20 to go down and buy a deal of dope and that'd be first thing in the morning on the first race of the day. That would start the day off. I was always focused on you know where the dollar was coming from to gamble but I really can't say which come first, the chicken or the egg. When I'd drink the gambling it'd get worse and when the gambling was happening I had funds there so I'd be drinking as well. Yeah, I always know with my story, I'd always use the alcohol as an excuse. So I'd be like, I'm going to go to the pub for a couple of pots, but know that I'm actually not going to the pub for a couple of pots. Even though I'd, I'd have them there, it was more to gamble. So I was kind of talking myself into just having a couple of harmless beers, but then it would turn into a whole night sort of gambling, spiralling out of control. I'm kind of different in a way as I never really had to make excuses to anybody because I only really ever had myself to answer to. I had a couple of relationships where I handled the money and I gambled away my girlfriend's money and mine. They knew what I was doing. I didn't really hide it, but there became a lot of tensions in the family, like with my father and mother lending me money and knowing it was either going towards drugs or gambling. And it was always about getting that feeling of, you know, looking for something to actually feel good about yourself or to feel uh, like you've achieved something, even though... The losses always outweigh the wins and and you um, find yourself sort of stuck in a bit of a quagmire where you're drinking to hide things and you're gambling to feel good and, you know, throughout that all you, you get your highs and lows and when you're on that roller coaster, the highs and lows get higher and lower and mental illness then started to play a factor and, and um, basically at the end of the day, something had to give and uh, so inter-entwined gambling, alcohol, drugs, mm. and so on. Did you eventually get to a tipping point? Yeah, there was a profound tipping point. It was like about two weeks after I'd handed in my notice at work and being unemployed and having no income. 
drinking along with the guys one night. I drank to excess as per usual, a couple of puffs on a joint. And when I left there, um, I had no petrol, no gas in the car. Went to a service station and uh, filled up with petrol and took off and thought, well, ain't that easy. So then I got this idea in my head that if I just stick my finger in my pocket of my jacket and hold up a service station, I could have money to get back to Crown Casino and maybe rekindle this house that I was about to lose and the car I was about to lose. And so I then uh, found myself holding up a service station. I got a $150-odd and went to Crown and lost it. So after I left Crown Casino, I went out to a shell servo down in Hoddle Street and um, put the half of my club lock under my jacket and went in and uh, asked for all the money and told him I was going to blow his head away. And he put up the shutters and uh, I took off. I then went to a 7-Eleven up in Victoria Street and did the same thing. The poor girl behind the counter, she handed over about 450 odd dollars. Then I decided, hang on, I'm out of cigarettes, I better go and get myself a packet of smokes. So I, I went to another place and bought a packet of smokes and lit one up and sitting at an intersection I see a divvy van. So I thought, hang on, the game's up. So I uh, headed back for Crown, the divvy in tow. Before I knew it, yeah, there was quite a few cars around with the blue lights not flashing. So I didn't want to run, I didn't want to hurt no one. I've, I never intended to hurt anyone that night. I was the one that was hurting. So as I'm just about to pull under the car park of Grand Casino, armed robbery squad cop pulls up beside me and points a thirty-eight at me head. And I said to him straight away, I said, just shoot me. He said, I'm not going to shoot you, mate, just put your hands up. As I did, I jumped out of the car, leaving it in drive, not thinking. I folded back the door of the cop car. I then told my story to the cops of mental illness and where I'd come from there. So after getting caught by the police, then what happened? I had a very sympathetic judge who um, gave me four-year good behaviour bond and a 12-month CBO, and I seen that as my redemption. When did you finally decide to get help? I was already self-excluded from Crown Casino and, and kept slipping back in now and again. So I rang Crown to get my self-exclusion lifted and they told me that, you know, the only way to go about that was to get a letter from a counsellor. So I went went home and uh, rang Gambler's Help and uh, speaking to a guy, I explained my situation and he lined up an appointment with me with a, with a Gambler's counsellor. And um, when I walked through the door of that counselling session, I had an epiphany and I realised that I wasn't there to get back into the Crown. I was there for help. And I received it. So what did you stop first? The alcohol, the drugs or the gambling? Really what I tackled first, which was the one that was worse for my mental health, was the marijuana. And I just got so low and depressed over just the way things were. In about, I, I decided that New Year's Eve 2001, I would give away the marijuana. Great. And then the drinking? I abstained from drinking for about 18 months, around about four years ago. I was going to the gym at the time and not losing any weight and not getting really that fit. And I moved moved into a unit of my own and and, um, had a bit of the isolation going again and and, uh, stopped going to the gym and met up with a few other drinkers and sort of, you know, fell off the wagon, you could say, with the drink. 2013, where I did self-exclude from the casino and 
Yeah, and, and the recovery all started from there. Um, you mentioned about working on giving up drinking. How's that going? I've sort of come to a point where, you know, I'm, I'm trying to limit the drinking that I'm doing. When I have something important to do, I have to get up early in the morning. I try and, you know, just lay off it a bit and just have a couple of quiet ones. I actually enjoy a drink and um, now I can have a drink without... But, you know, I understand that a lot of people struggle with losing the inhibitions and uh, gambling comes along with it. So after you've had a few drinks, do you ever think about gambling? Not now, no, no. The only thing in my mind now is uh, what I can do to help others. That's an amazing story, Ian. Thanks for sharing it. What's life like for you now? Well, life's great now. It's really looking up and I've got a lot of things going good for me and I've joined the Alliance for Gambling Reform and I'm getting heavily involved in that. And I've also done training on the weekend for a respin program where we go around and educate the community and health workers and stuff and, and um, you know, share our lived experiences. And basically, I, I just want to get the message out there to people and, you know, that there is help out there for you. And, you know, you just got to keep having that hope and belief in yourself. And, you know, when you're ready, if you want that help, it's out there. So if somebody was to come to you, they've got a gambling problem, they drink too much, they take drugs, where do they start? Have you got something that they can take away with them today if they're listening? Take small steps, you know. It's like building a brick wall. You put one brick at a time and it doesn't happen overnight, but if you put your mind to it and you you really want to change, just start with small steps and and make little changes. Try and replace them with things like I've got hobbies and things now that sort of fill up a lot of my time and um, coin collecting and stuff and uh, reading and things I'd never even thought I'd ever be interested in. But, you know, basically, um, yeah, there is hope. Thanks a lot for joining us and sharing your story on Not A Dollar More. Thanks for having me, Shane. It was really a pleasure to share my story. You've been listening to Not A Dollar More, and we've been looking at the links between harmful gambling, drugs, and alcohol. For more information about harmful gambling and all the different types of help available, visit our website at notadollarmore.org.au. You can also call the Gambler's Help Number for free and confidential advice on 1800 858 858. We've also listed some Australia-wide numbers on our website if you're wanting to get help with problematic alcohol and or drug use. This podcast has been produced by Banyul Community Health. Thanks to all our guests today. Don't miss our other episodes for more stories of problem gambling, recovery and ways to get help. Bye for now.